Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the 2019 Sugar Bowl meeting between mascots Bevo 15 and Aga 10 nearly ended in disaster, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the birthplace of Lyrico Spinto soprano Kristen Lewis who made her Metropolitan Opera debut as Aida on Monday night. Tonight, we're looking at the case of Cameron Todd Willingham, a Texas man who was executed in 2004. Willingham was convicted in 1992 of setting the December 23, 1991 fire that killed his daughters Amber, two, and twins Cameron and Carmen, one. During his direct appeal, state post-conviction, and federal habeas corpus proceedings, Willingham did not challenge the evidence of arson that had been admitted at his trial. Two weeks before he was to be executed in 2004, his advocates enlisted Dr. Gerald Hurst to examine the 1991 findings and 1992 testimony and render an opinion. Although Dr. Hurst's report conclusively ruled out arson as the cause of the fire, it was too little and too late. Willingham was executed after a final profanity-laced tirade directed at the girl's mother and his ex-wife, Stacy. Since 2006, the Innocence Project, on behalf of Willingham's family, has instituted proceedings challenging the evidence of arson and, most recently, filing an ethics complaint against the original prosecutor, John Jackson. We'll be talking about the evidence against Willingham, the challenges to his conviction, and the unsuccessful efforts to exonerate him. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Welcome back, and Happy New Year. Good evening, and Happy New Year to you as well, Lisa. And It's nice to be back on the air here with uh, Claire and Convincing. I've missed my weekly dose of true crime here on Tuesday night. So I'm definitely excited about this one. Now, I do have a question based upon the intro there. Uh, mm-hmm. The findings you said uh, from Dr. Hurst, uh, yes. it said yes. that it was uh, able to exclude, uh, it was able to exclude arson? Well, his report 
unequivocally excluded arson. However, it was a very short report, and it was submitted to uh, Governor Perry 88 minutes before the time of the scheduled execution. So is this a situation where now we know this man's innocent because he didn't set a fire, or do we just think no, he killed him some other way? Actually, Dr. Hurst's report was long on criticism of the fire investigators and the investigation, but very short on any evidence or facts that supported his opinion that it was not arson. And Dr. Hurst, uh, he implied that other causes had not been ruled out when they had. Mm-hmm. And also he he said some kind of unprofessional and perhaps not wholly objective things about the fire investigation that mm-hmm. gave the appearance of bias on his part. Okay. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Okay. Okay, very interesting. So, yeah. So, I mean, this thing definitely heated up towards the end for sure. Uh, so, uh, I mean, how you been, first of all, before we get into this thing? How how have you been since we last uh, last went on very, the airwaves here on Blog Talk? Very good. I had my I had my two weeks where I could sleep on Saturday and not feel guilty and you know not have to worry about research and show prep so it was kind of nice but I'm glad to be back I missed it I didn't know what to do with myself on Tuesday nights <laughs> right <laughs> it, uh, it Christmas has night and kinda, New Year's night it has been kind of odd uh, not having a show on Tuesday nights but I mean it's definitely interesting and you know what we're up against here tonight we're up against the president of the united states here i guess uh i got a notification as soon as we went live here that the president decided <laughs> to go live as soon as we uh as soon as we went live so yay us that's that's, oh, some, that's well. a big competition <laughs> that's okay because you know the people can listen whenever it's convenient we are archived, and so they, if they can go listen to President Trump and then come finish listening to us and listen to the beginning of the show later, we don't mind. Absolutely not at all. I absolutely love it and appreciate every single one of our listeners, and I certainly hope you all all had a uh, happy and prosperous uh, holiday season while we were gone so let's go ahead and get into this thing. Uh, you know, the Willingham family, uh, on paper, it appeared at least, uh, according to what I've seen, you know, pretty normal, you know, uh, two, uh, three kids that, and a husband and a wife, correct? Right? <laughs> well, yeah, three children, a husband and wife. Now, Todd and Stacy had been together for several years. Todd was originally from Oklahoma. He met Stacy, and though he, then he moved to Corsicana, Texas, and uh, that's where she was from. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd been together for some time. They had Amber, and then a year later they had twins, Cameron and Carmen. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but they did not get married until three months before the fire. Okay. Now, okay. also, it was not a normal family in that there was a history of some severe domestic violence by Todd okay. against Stacy. She has always said he would have never hurt the kids, but uh, neighbors saw him hit her. They heard him hitting her. They heard her falling to the ground or falling on the floor. At one point, one neighbor said, I heard him. I heard him strike her, and then I heard him say, get up, bitch, and I'll knock you down again, or words to that effect. He had been using drugs since he was about 11 years old. He had been huffing inhalants, paint. Uh, he had been involved in some petty crime, but had also been involved in actually recruiting juveniles to go commit crimes, and he could reap the benefits right. and not face right. liability. So. He was a, uh, basically, he was a person who you mattered to him as long as you served a purpose. Okay. If you didn't serve a purpose, you had no place in his life. Very true. Very, very true on that. Uh, You know, uh, certainly a dark, dark man, you know, but uh, that's another thing, you know. It appears that, it appears that, uh, you know, he may have been hiding it uh, in certain aspects. That's the sad part about it is Correct. a lot of these people are unfortunately very good at hiding their craziness Correct. before uh, and, or not until it's too late, at least I should say. And, you know, of course, his probation officers, they were interviewed for a Frontline, a documentary on Frontline, which you can watch online on YouTube. And they said he was a good guy. Well, of course – he's going to project a good guy to you guys. Because if he projects who he really is, y'all going to put him back in jail. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, this thing has, it's gotten a lot, a lot of coverage. Uh, Mm -hmm. Apparently there was a Mm -hmm. uh, 2011 documentary. There was a 2009 uh, report by the New Yorker and a 2004 Chicago Tribune article all mm-hmm. of which apparently, uh, all apparently uh, were quite uh, uh, anti-prosecution. It appears correct. They are, and there's within all of those things, and and all of the advocacy advocacy by the Innocence Project and and Willingham's family. Um, you know, there is a sanitized version of Todd. And anyone who talks about the domestic violence, the cr- the criminality, I mean, this man did not have a job. He didn't have the job and support the family. His wife did that, and he stayed home with the kids. Right. Right. And so let's start looking. Let's start looking at the key players here in this thing. I mean, we've already started yeah. talking about Todd here a little bit, and. He was quite uh, quite the individual, so let's get more deep into him especially. Uh, how did he get to this point on December 23, 1991? You know, I think it was just that 
even though outwardly he gave the appearance of, you know, we're working on our marriage, you know, it's tough, but it's getting better, it's going to get better. I don't think that he was really happy being married and being saddled with three kids. He was home and all day with the kids. The wife worked. He wanted to go out and, you know, drink drink and throw darts and who knows what other criminal activity he may have been up to. Um, and, you know, they were kind of cramping his style. And so, like I said, he could <clears> – <throat> he was a sociopath. He was manipulative. Hey, so he this could is be one of those what situations you expected where, him to be. This is one of those yeah. situations where it sounds like he just got rid of the the quote unquote dead weight as he would consider them, and uh, you know went to do kind of in the same vein as Casey, who wanted to go out and party and things like that. Right. I I think that that is, and it may have been, it may have been an impulsive thing. This was early in the morning. Uh, we'll get into it a little bit later, but it may have been an impulsive thing. It may not have been something, you know, he planned, but just, you know, one of the kids got on his nerves. He was impulsive. I mean, the domestic violence against his wife evidences his, his impulsiveness. She talked about his temper. His family talked about his temper. He had impulse control issues as a child. You know, he had a stepmother who loved him like a mother, but he had a strict father who mm-hmm. expected his rules to be followed and obeyed. And his stepmother, again, on the Frontline documentary, talks about how, you know, Cameron just wasn't wasn't with the program. And I think oh, she God. probably could not understand, you know, that he would break the rules and not care about the consequences, probably because he could manipulate his way out of the consequences. Right, right. And that's another, yeah. you know, another pattern of his life. He manipulates himself out of the consequences of his actions. His okay. initial early criminal record, he ended up getting probation and getting sentenced to drug treatment and convincing everybody that he was just doing stupid things and not thinking when probably more likely than not, he was more calculated and more planned than he let on. He just wasn't very effective. Okay. Okay. As a criminal. I mean, very good point point as far as that goes. I mean, you know, a, a lot of these people, in case you can't, find the pattern here a lot of these people seem to think that they're untouchable and it sounds like this is going to continue that pattern you know they they get off for the small stuff so they start graduating because they seem like they get this uh sense that they're untouchable i think with him though it was more that there was just an impulsive act and then he had to get out of it and he wasn't successful this time because it involved three babies because Amber was two and the, and the twins were one mm-hmm. who died when their adult able-bodied father did not. Okay. Okay. And I think so, that's where, and yeah, a lot of the public is going to be, you know, not very sympathetic. 
so to let's your talk sob about, story. Let's talk about the uh, the lady in the case, uh, Miss Stacy. Let's talk about Stacy. What's going on with uh, that situation? How did she get to this situation where you know she she found herself in this uh, married number I, one to Tom or even involved with him? Todd, excuse me. I. I didn't find Todd. They called him, his name is Cameron Todd, but they always called him Todd. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not find a lot of information on Stacy. I believe the little bit that I could infer from what I found, she was from the Corsicana, Texas, which is Navarro County area. Mm-hmm. Her family were the Kukendals. And I believe some of her family members were in law enforcement as well. One of her brothers eventually was in law enforcement. Um, She met Todd, probably liked bad boys. He had tattoos. He probably talked big. He was tall. He was, you know, okay, nice looking, I Uh. guess, except for the mullet. When he was arrested, he had a mullet. But it was 1991. Go figure. Um, and I think she liked bad boys and they were together for a long time. They had three children and, you know, when she got pregnant with Amber, he stayed with her. When she got pregnant with the twins, he stayed with her. So they ended up getting married three months before the, uh, before the fire and the murders. Um, now she's made some public statements and we'll kind of go into that as well a little bit later, uh, in the chronology but um, initially, she believed he didn't do it. She didn't believe he could have done it. Okay. Um, and that is no one could blame her. I, I wouldn't want to believe that I had children and married someone who could do something that horrible. Right. That was a monster, um, let's be honest. And, um, but she also, I think, knew you know he had a temper and he used to beat her. And there were, even though she testified at the penalty phase of the trial and denied that, they brought in witnesses who had seen him hit her, who had intervened, you know, letting her come into his house to call police when Todd was beating on her. So there was no escaping that there was, you know, serious domestic violence in their relationship. Okay. And she made a statement at one time that was kind of chilling. She said, you know, he may kill me, but he'll never hurt the kids. He would never hurt the kids. Well, needless to say. uh, Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. As things often work out. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's talk about two-year-old Amber. Uh, Obviously not much of a... uh, Backstory here leading up, but she did have two years before uh, the unfortunate incident occurred. Uh, what was her life yeah. like leading into the incident? You know, I I don't know. She, I, I think, um, you know, Stacy has said that Todd did spoil the girls. Uh, Amber would have been born in about 1989. And then Cameron and Carmen were born a year later in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, she was two. Um, the only thing that's really 
that's kind of the sad part. There's not a lot of information about what these girls were like. The only statements I've ever seen about Amber are about how she might have set the fire because she was so curious about everything. Hmm. And and that's been that's been about all I can find. I mean, nothing about personalities or who was a tiger and who was a meek little you know, not meek, I'm I don't mean that. Who was a proper prim little girl and who was a tomboy and, and they were so young that maybe that none of those things had really formed in their personalities quite yet. Right, right. Uh, so I posted so pictures of thing, them because you know, has it been explored? I know you said that they. Uh, this is one of the possible uh, explanations that's been offered up is that Amber could have started it. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, that that's you know that's one of the what, that was one of the theories uh, during cross examination. At the trial, um, I think in, in in interviews with the investigators during the fire investigation, I believe Stacy said something along those lines. Um, you know that she was always curious about everything. Maybe she found a lighter. You know, but not. I mean, I'm not saying anybody has tried to, you know, point the finger at Amber and blame her, but just that right. has been thrown out there. As right. you know, and and Cameron Todd Willingham never talked about his daughters. I'm the oldest of three daughters, so uh-huh. even though Cameron and and Carmen were twins, you know, I kind of feel like Amber was the big sister, and Cameron and Carmen were the little sisters. Uh-huh. And I posted two pictures, and they were beautiful little girls, right, of the three of them. Um, but their lives were unfortunately cut short. Amber would be, what, 26? No, 28 now? Or coming Amber near would be 28? One year older than me, so she'd be 29. And then Cameron and Carmen in would be your age. Be right. And Cameron and Carmen were your age. Uh-huh. Roughly. Yeah, that's um, mind blowing right there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, not a lot. And when Todd Willingham talked, he didn't talk about his daughters. He talked about himself and how this was being done to him and how unfair it was mm-hmm. and how he was innocent. Of course. And, you know, I mean, you know that, the that father would totally be like, I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm so this is so terrible that this is happening to me. Mm-hmm. You know, all that, of course. Yeah. You know? Who cares about the kids? Yeah. Me. So, and I, I just went on, um, on, uh, the internet and found Amber was born in 1989. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking for Cameron and Carmen now, but yeah, they, they were, you know, their lives were cut tragically short two days before Christmas in 1991. And uh, Carmen and Cameron were born in 1990 as well. Okay. 
stuff. Okay. It doesn't have so a month or a date of birth. So obviously Cameron and Carmen, we know uh, they didn't have a very long life at all, you know, being uh, snuffed out at the age of one. But uh, what do we know about them in their very short life? I mean, obviously, looking at what uh, looking at what she said beforehand, uh, you know, she said the kids were spoiled rotten. So it sounds like, at least from her perspective, like you had mentioned previously, he would have quote never hurt the kids. <clears throat> yeah, and and he was. You know, like I said, she said he spoiled them rotten, so he was probably good to them uh, at that age. But, you know, from birth to two, you know, their they're, children are pretty right. – they don't make a lot of demands. I mean, they cry when they're hungry, cry when they need to be changed, you know, but they eat, they sleep, uh, they can be incredibly cute. In fact, I have – I have friends who are parents who say that, you know, God makes them that cute so that you don't kill them when they turn two. But see, right. two is when they get, two is when they start turning into little dictators and when they can be known to be difficult. I have a friend who's been through this like three times in the last five years because she's had three children very close together. And I believe she had one that both of her sons were kind of in the terrible twos at the same time. You know, like the youngest entered terrible twos, and the three-year-old, who should have been over that, decided to join his brother. Right, right. And uh, I have another friend whose daughter was smiling and happy all the time and laughing, and now every picture my friend posts, the girl is crying. <laughs> she's just well, not happy anymore. Well, no, no. I mean, the child cried at Disney World. Oh Lord, how are you going to cry at the happiest place on earth? I mean, they arrive at Disney World and the baby is crying. Oh, so, no. um, and that too may have played a role in what ultimately happened on December twenty third. Because remember, Amber was two. Right. Amber was probably starting to talk more. Uh, Amber had, you know, more likely than not had learned the word no and maybe, you know, was a little more defiant and not quite as placid and, and uh, amenable to things just because mom and dad suggested them. Right. But absolutely. we don't know because... Cameron, Todd Willingham never talked about his children, and Stacey Willingham, you know, she's led a very private life. She has, uh, you know, done, I think, everything that she can to stay out of the limelight and out of the controversy. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason I didn't do too much digging on her, because I think she is entitled to privacy, and so, you know, I'm not going to dig into where she is now or what she's doing now because, you know, she's entitled to have her private life. Yes, absolutely. And you never know what kind of psycho may be listening to this kind of show and is going to go try to interrupt her private life. So let's go to December 23rd. Obviously, everybody on December 23rd is getting ready for Christmas, and it appears that Stacy was uh, in full swing out 
uh, getting ready for Christmas. She was shopping at the Salvation Army when the fire occurred, correct? Correct. And, yeah, and remember, Stacy was working as a waitress to support the family. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have a lot of money. And um, they didn't have a lot of money for Todd's extracurricular activities either. And I believe Todd also was not exactly faithful. Mm-hmm. So that may have been another, and that may have been a, a reason for some of the conflict between him and Stacy. But yes, yeah, she had left about nine fifteen that morning to go to uh, do some Christmas shopping at the Salvation Army. Todd okay. woke up his statements, and and this is one of the hardest parts about this case. And a lot of cases is we only have what he tells us. We don't have any way of confirming or corroborating it because there was no one else there that can tell us anything. Right. I mean, there's no. So we can only go by what he said. Correct. And And he says he woke up when she was. Yeah. Here's the weird thing, and I'm going to go ahead and get this out. Here's the weird thing to me that's just right off the top of, you know, my head is the fact that he made it out with only minor burns, but the children perished. It, it, my thing is this. Number one, what man, obviously we've said he's a fish individual, but what man is not going to go back for his children? And make sure his children get out before he gets out. Uh, and and we'll get to some more some more things along those lines, right? Because that is one of the that is one of the things. I mean, I first read about the case in 2004 when they were trying to uh, get the execution That's stayed true. or get a reprieve from uh, Governor Perry. And, uh, you know, one of the first things I read was the direct appeal opinion. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was probably one of the only things I read (laughs) at that time because (laughs) there wasn't a lot of, a lot of internet resources. The the number of internet resources has, you know, potentially uh, improved since 2004. And that was one of the things that kind of struck me. And we'll get into that in, in a few in a few minutes. But uh, Stacy leaves. Todd said he woke up and both twins or one was crying, so he got bottles and gave each of them a bottle. According to one statement, he asked Amber if she wanted to go into his room with him, and she said no, so he left her in her bed, the twins with their bottles on the floor of the bedroom. There was a baby gate, but no door, and he went out of the bedroom and went back to bed and went back to sleep. This was at 9.15. The first calls about the fire were at around 10.30, 10.34 in the morning. So you're talking a period of about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. Between okay. Stacy leaving and the fire starting. All right. And um, aco- the calls, according to. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The calls about the fire were from neighbors. 
and they were really? that, that was about ten thirty in the morning. Yeah. So an hour and fifteen minutes. He claims he went back to sleep. Um he claims and he's given he Todd Willingham gave numerous inconsistent statements to friends, to neighbors, to family members. And he's to a investigators. heavy sleeper. First thing. He's a heavy yeah. sleeper. And um one of the other odd things is that Amber was found in the bed in the master bedroom. She wasn't found in the room with the twins. Just jumping ahead a little bit, but this is one of the weird things. Now, Willingham, in one of his many statements, the version that he gave is that he heard Amber calling, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. He got up. He threw on his pants. He told Amber to get out of the house, and then he went to the twins' room to look for them. He says he stepped over the baby gate. Smoke was heavy, so he got down on his hands and knees and felt around and couldn't find Cameron or Carmen. So he left the room when something fell from the ceiling and burned his shoulder. Went out, you know, walking over the baby gate, says he burned his hand. Although there's no documented injury to his hand. He did have a burn on his shoulder. He had singed hair on his head, on his eyebrows, and I think on his chest. His feet were not covered in soot. They were not burned. They were not dirty. Uh-huh. Um, and he ran out of the house barefoot. And um, he claims in other statements that he had Amber, but she got away from him. Now, remember, right. Amber was subsequently found in the master bedroom. She was found face down on the bed under the covers. And she died from smoke inhalation. Carmen and Cameron were found in their bedroom at the doorway. The baby gate had burned, and they were both found on the floor at or near the doorway. If he went into the room and he stepped over the baby gate, how did he not step on or over or into Carmen and Cameron? And with the baby gate in the door, if Amber was in the room with the twins, how did she get into the master bedroom bed? Right. Absolutely. Especially. Um, now, another thing that is interesting is that a uh, a witness came forward in 2000, and he said that he was near the house early in the morning on December 23rd, and he saw smoke coming from the house, and he saw a man coming in and out of the house, loading things into his car, mm-hmm. and closing the door behind him each time he came out of the house. And that it wasn't until the firefighters got there that the man said anything about his kids. And other witnesses who came forward at the time and were interviewed at the time of the fire said that two of them said that they observed him crouched in the front yard looking at the house. It was only when they came out and he realized he was being observed 
that he started shouting about the children. One, one neighbor didn't see flames. She only saw smoke. And she told him to go back into the house, and he wouldn't. He also gave inconsistent statements about how and when he got out and the conditions at the time he got out. He told some mm-hmm. witnesses that he went out the back door, which was by a refrigerator. And firefighters had to move it to make entry through the back of the house. Um, So how would he get out of the back of the house with the refrigerator in front of the door? Apparently, it was kept there, which doesn't make any sense to me. And when I saw the picture of the refrigerator blocking the door, I thought, oh, my God, he moved it to keep firefighters from coming in the back. Because a lot of times, if the flames are too bad in the front they'll come around and they'll come at it through the back. Right. And, uh, but, you know, some of the journalists have interviewed people and have given some hearsay statements from individuals that, you know, that say, well, the refrigerator had nothing to do with it. He didn't move it there. It was kept there. So, you know, but nobody has testified that it was kept there. Right. Uh, Nobody has, you know, nobody from the Willingham family Todd Willingham didn't explain it, um, so I don't know. But, you know, he couldn't have exited through the back door because the refrigerator was in front of it and firefighters had to move that. He says he went through the front door that at one point he said that it was on, it was on fire and he had to kick it open, but it opened to the inside. So how do you kick a door that opens to the inside? I mean, if I go up to the door in this room right now and kick it, it's not going to open. It's just going to make a lot of noise. And again, his feet weren't burned. How could he kick a door that he says was on fire without burning his feet? I mean, if you look at his story, it falls apart pretty easily. Right. Well, part of the problem, like I said, is he gave so many... He gave so many inconsistent statements to different people. Um, and, you know, you don't do that unless you don't remember what you told them before you, when you talked to them before, you don't remember, you know, your story. And so then you change it or maybe, you know, you change it because you think, well, this sounds like I try, you know, they're saying I don't. I didn't try to rescue my kids. Okay, let me make it sound like I tried to rescue my kids. I'll claim I crawled in the smoke on the floor of the bedroom that was on fire. Um, and then one of the other problems is that at one point when um, he broke the window into the twins' bedroom, which, of course, gave ventilation to the fire and caused it to flash. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, the reports that criticized the original investigation, while they mention him breaking that window as a fact, they don't see the, they don't seem to see the significance of it. He broke a window on a fire. That's like rule number one, don't do. Unless you unless you cannot get out and you need air or you can get out through that window. 
Uh, just like if, if you're if you're escaping from a room that's on fire, you close the door, and that provides a barrier to the fire that the fire it has to overcome before it can spread any further. Um, but you know, again, he he broke the window, and that sounds more like well, maybe it wasn't burning hot enough for him, so he broke the window to give it some oxygen. Um, also, he was observed after the fire going through the house pouring cologne on the floor. It was British Sterling, hmm. which I think was kind of a low-end um, cologne for men. You probably never heard of it. Okay, no. <laughs> but I'm a, ch- I'm a child of the 70s. I remember British Sterling. Um, okay. and, um, I think I bought my dad some when we went to the drugstore for Christmas shopping a couple of times because my parents were procrastinators and I inherited that from them. <laughs> but, um, he was pouring it on the floor and saying something like, uh, okay, now everything's going to have cologne on it, which is odd. Um, firefighters who were, you know, cleaning up after the fire when he came back to get help getting some of the belongings or trying to get belongings. Um, he showed emotion when he found that his dartboard had burned up. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest red flags to me is witnesses described how when the flames started coming out of the house, he jumped in his car or tried to push his car away from the house. When they had been telling him, go in and rescue your babies, go get your babies, where are the babies? Right. Um, and that, to me, just that, that doesn't sit well for me either. Now, some of these arson experts have explained that, and some of the arson experts have explained the inconsistent statements, but they're not explaining those things with testimony or statements from Cameron Willingham that provide an explanation. These are the explanations that they come up with. Well, he was moving the car because having the car near the house catching on fire would have put his children in more danger. It's like, sweetie, the children probably by that point were dead. I mean, I'm sorry. Smoke inhalation and the the intensity of that fire, you know, by the time he moved his car, the children were gone. Uh, it was a very intense fire, and I posted pictures of the house. Okay. Are you still there, Michael? Okay. Yeah, I'm still here. Are you here. just trying to take me? it all in? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I'm trying to take it all in. Yeah. I apologize. Um, this microphone sometimes doesn't pick me up. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it scares me. I always think my phone dropped. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so he, you know, he had a lot of things during the fire and before the fire. I mean, being observed while there's just smoke crouching down in your front yard looking at the house and being observed moving, you know, belongings into your vehicle, um, going in and out of the house two or three or four times and closing the door behind you every time is, is really kind of odd. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, um, it's kind of so, odd isn't even the term for it. It's very odd. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, things like got even flags. Things got even odder between December fourth and January eighth, uh, or December twenty fourth, excuse me, and January eighth. Yeah. I, I mean, the guy didn't show any grief. He's obviously, like you said, given these inconsistent statements. It's just it becomes kind of. Uh, a circus almost. Right. And he even a few times, he made statements to people like, everybody thinks I did this. Everything thinks I did this. Or everybody thinks I did something to the kids. And set the fire to cover it up. And, and those are kind of, you know, unless, you know, unless Cam and Todd Willingham was also one of those people who you know, they in their mind, they never did anything wrong. It was always someone else's fault. Or they were always being unjustly suspected and accused of things. I don't, you know, I'm not really, that fits with his probable personality problem or disorder. Right. Right. Of you know, thinking people were going to accuse him, and then he was impulsive again. And, you know, I can't I can't say that enough. He had he had exhibited in the inhalant use uh, that does not do your brain any good. And when you damage your brain, a lot of times damage to the brain is accompanied by emotional and you know, personality issues that don't get better as time goes on. Okay. So um, it's just uh, figuring him out is very difficult. Yeah. Certainly sounds like it. Uh, I mean, uh, the guy sounds absolutely like a piece of work in and of himself. And, you know, it, it could be a situation just, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't understand where you're coming to any conclusion, but this conclusion based upon the evidence. But, you know, we'll keep, we'll keep moseying along right. just in case well, there's some stragglers out there. <laughs> and these are all, you know, these are all circumstantial observations. Uh, and, and some people, very, you know, they they're entitled to look at these same circumstances and form an, an, a different opinion. Right. Um, but to me, you know, all of these circumstances do not. They lead me to think he had something to do, or that he was hiding something. Right. Absolutely. I mean, even if and he didn't mean you, to kill the kids, he still was trying to do something. Uh, Lord right. knows what he was trying to accomplish, but I mean, it certainly sounds like he was trying to do well, something. The, like he he wasn't exactly upset. It sounds like that the uh, that the fire was started. He, uh, hell, he may well, have not have started the fire, and he may have just freaking just been like, oh well, things out. There's a fire here. Why well, don't no, I just find this no, justification to get rid of my kids? No, that's that's not it. No. Uh, and the lack of grief, I, I just have to, you know, reiterate, the lack of grief may have been due to the personality 
disorder. I mean, I say sociopathic, but he probably has like an antisocial personality disorder. And with right. antisocials and borderline personalities, they are the only people in the world who matter. When you serve a purpose for them, they can pretend to care about you. But once you serve no purpose, they want to have nothing to do with you. You either cease to exist or they will get rid of you and harm you to get rid of you. And Jody Arias is an example of that. You know, look at what she did with Travis Alexander when he didn't want to have anything to do with her anymore. Because he'd finally seen, you know, the monster under the mask. And, you know, that's another odd thing. He had a mask. He could be uh, sweet and loving to Stacy, which is probably why she took him back after he beat her. She had two older brothers. I, if I were Stacy, well, first of all, if I had been Stacy, Todd Willingham would have hit me once and would have probably been crippled after that because I would have, you know, beat his ass, literally. <laughs> But she had two older brothers. I would have told my older brothers. If right. I wasn't going to do it, I would have said, he's beating on me, and I would have let my older brothers take care of him. And every girl I've known that ha- that has older brothers, oh, yeah, they will take care of the problem. And the boy will willingly disappear from your life <laughs> because he doesn't want to mess with those older brothers. So... um but, right, you know, that's probably why, but that's why she took him back. And she probably always believed he would never do it again. It wouldn't happen again. He didn't mean it. They can be very personable and very convincing. Uh-huh. But, I mean, and you're absolutely you right. never really that. know. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, exactly. So, but, in the investigation... He was arrested on January 8th, 1992. Um, The police had, you know, gone through the interviews and interviewed witnesses. They'd gotten some initial testing back, and they had sufficient probable cause to arrest him. Now, interestingly enough, in spite of the arguments uh, to the contrary, he was actually not charged with arson. He was charged with capital murder. Okay, I mean, and, you know, uh, then at that point, the arson kind of becomes moot. Yeah, it's likely a distinction without a difference, but he was not charged or convicted of arson. He was charged and convicted of capital murder, three counts of capital murder. Um, so he was arrested. Now, the investigation, of course, started on December 23rd. Uh, the assistant chief in Corsicana, Douglas Fogg, I believe his first name was Douglas, he began the investigation, and he called in Texas State Fire Marshal Manuel Vasquez. Both Chief Fogg and Mr. Mr. Vasquez were experienced. They had more than 10 or 15, 20 years experience. They weren't, you know, 
they weren't just out of the fire academy and given the task of investigating this this fire to determine what caused it. Uh, they were experienced with cause and origin uh, and and investigating them. Uh, there were videos taken of the scene, the house. I, I believe there were at least two videos, one taken by the police, and I believe another one taken by the fire officials. Uh, the investigation at the fire scene went on over several days, probably about a week. And they gathered um, they gathered samples from flooring. The only sample that tested positive for anything was in the, I believe it was a door jam between the front door and the porch. There was a gap. And the door jam tested positive for kerosene. The fire had involved the bedroom, Carmen and Cameron, and Amber's bedroom. It came out into the hall, went right and toward the front door, and then fully involved the front door and around the front door and spread out into the porch. The rest of the house had heavy smoke damage, some water damage, but no fire damage. There was no fire damage in the master bedroom, no fire damage in the kitchen, no fire damage in the other rooms of the house. Just heavy smoke and water damage and some heat damage. Um, But the the bedroom, the child's bedroom, children's bedroom was completely engulfed. Um, when you look at the pictures, I mean, you can you can make out the frames and the springs of the bed. Um, one of the cribs is reduced to just a just a a frame. It consumed the dressers. Consume one eighty percent, one chest of drawers eighty percent, and a dresser like seventy percent consumed. So this was, I mean, this was heavy fire damage, and this is in a child a child's room. Um, I don't think there was a TV in there. Willingham has claimed there was a ceiling fan in there, and and the uh, the investigators who have looked at the findings have claimed there was a ceiling fan in there, but Willingham never listed that in 1991 when he was asked to provide a list of what was in the children's rooms, what was in the hallway, what was in the living room, what was in the hall, you know, what was on the porch. So, um, and it was December, it was like 50-degree day. The ceiling fan would not have been on anyway, even if there was a ceiling fan in there. Uh, there was also a, a space heater, and I believe it was a gas space heater, in the in the twins' room. But the fire officials found it in the off position. Right. Tested the lines and found no leaks. 
They also found no evidence of an electrical short anywhere in the bedroom, the children's bedroom, or any other room in the house. And the fuse box had no damage to indicate any kind of short activity. They also examined the wiring in the in the twins' bedroom because that was apparently improvised wiring. Uh, but there was no evidence of shorting along the wiring. So in the investigation, as they should have, the first thing that they did was they ruled out gas. They ruled out the space heater as a source of fire. Okay. And the damage, the the heaviest damage was remote from the space heater. If the space heater caused the fire, you would expect the damage to be worse near around the space heater and then lessening as it went out right. to a degree. But the, the heavy, heavy damage, the worst damage, was in the center of the room. Okay. Which, I and mean, then, of course, there was the fire, obviously, coming right. from the center of the room. Was there anything in the center of the room that they found that could have possibly caused it? Thing did not find any accelerants or traces of accelerants. That actually is not unusual. Uh, because it depends on what the accelerant is, mm-hmm. and we don't know what the accelerant was. It could have been kerosene. I don't know what. Uh, and none of the fire, none of the fire investigators who examined this said they found kerosene. So if we assume it's kerosene, this is what you should have found. You know, kerosene doesn't burn up, or this is what it leaves behind. These are the traces that you'll find. You found it in the in the porch door, but you didn't find it anywhere else. You know, you you should have found it somewhere else, but you didn't. They don't say that. Right. You know, they don't provide any examples of accelerants and what could have or should have been found. And like I said, I've read, I mean, I used to work for defense attorneys who did insurance defense, and we did a lot of fire cases where, our client denied for you know uh, to pay for damages caused by a fire because there was some negligence on the part of the insured that started the fire or whatever you know we suspected that you know the the or that the victims of the fire had some financial problems and perhaps they were trying to get some money and we had cause and origin and, you know, investigators and experts that we worked with. Uh, one of the experts involved in Willingham's case, John Lentini, he was from LSU, and I've talked to him about other things. He's a very nice man, very knowledgeable and very, you know, personable. But, um, you know, the... That's how they would go about writing the report to support their opinions for us. Unfortunately, in 1991, standards weren't the same. Uh, There probably wasn't really a standard. And a lot of things that Mr. Lentini 
and Gerald's Dr. Hurst and Mr. Byler have uh, done over the years through experimentation and observation had not been done yet. So some of the things that the investigators in 1991 used as indicators aren't solely indicators of arson. They can be caused by other conditions. However, they also can still be indicators of arson. Just because they can be caused by other conditions doesn't mean those conditions were present. Okay. And again, I'll get into it a little bit. I'm I'm maybe getting off on a little bit of a tangent. But um, uh, the the criticism of the original investigation really is not equitable. Because they're taking the original investigation and they're picking and choosing what they want to criticize and ignoring anything that doesn't fit. One of the things for them that doesn't fit, natural accidental causes were ruled out. The investigators both did not believe because of the patterns that they saw on the floor of the bedroom and the location of the worst burn area in the center of the floor suggested that some type of accelerant was used. Right. It didn't didn't find any traces of it in chemical or other testing that was available in 1991. But that doesn't mean it wasn't there. It just means that perhaps whatever he used, you know, the fire was intense enough to burn it away. Okay. And so there's not going to be any traces of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's easily explainable just like you just did. And, you know, while the the patterns that were interpreted in 1991 as poor patterns can be caused by other things, they also can be caused by pouring an accelerant onto a floor and lighting it on fire. And I think that's a mistake a lot of lay people make. And, you know, one of the points that I want to make, I'm jumping ahead, but... Mm -hmm. A lot of these challenges and a lot of these criticisms were brought forth before the jury at Willingham's trial. Right. And they found the evidence sufficient to convict. Hmm. So they knew that the electrical cause, or, or that, you know, electrical and and gas heater were ruled out, but you know, one expert wasn't sure, wasn't, didn't observe the thing in the off position, but the other one did. And that's the thing, too. Fogg and, and Vasquez worked together, but Fogg had done investigation before he brought Vasquez in. Right. Vasquez. And so the things that Fogg had done, he could have apprised Vasquez of those results, and then they moved forward from there. Vasquez didn't have to come in and go do everything that Fogg had already done and redo it to check his results. And I don't think any 
any logical, rational fire expert undertaking their own investigation, if they're brought in by somebody that says, hey, I can't quite figure out what's going on here. This is what I've done. This is what I've found. Take a look. What do you think? They're not going to go back and recreate everything you've already done. They're going to take a look at what you've done and take a look at it themselves and see if they can see something that you're not seeing. So, but, uh, yeah, so they, they found evidence of arson. There were several things. Um, I think the uh, Vasquez listed 20 indicators, multiple points of origin, poor patterns on the floor, low burning on the walls because fire goes up, not down. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that the fire came out into the hallway and then went right toward the front door and involved the front door, the uh, burning in the uh, pattern and the kerosene on the on the ledge. I think one thing Vasquez uh, maybe was mistaken about in his testimony. He's he passed away, so he's no longer able to look at his testimony and defend his findings. Right. Or explain why he made a comment that's now being criticized uh, at trial. Although most of the comments that were criticized were made during cross-examinations that were contentious between Mr. Vasquez and David Martin, who, is, who was Cameron Todd Willingham's attorney, defense attorney along with another right. attorney. Right. And so, um go ahead. I, so that's I think that's you know that's the investigation he was arrested on January 8th and he was charged with capital murder. Do you want to take a quick break or do you want to just keep plowing through? Let's just keep going through. Uh this okay. is definitely this is definitely some great stuff. What's the plea offer they uh give them? Well, the district attorney in Navarro County, contrary to what uh, what some would have you believe, was actually not a fan of the death penalty. Mm-hmm. He did not feel uh, that it should be requested in every murder case, and, and he limited the circumstances under which he would even go after it. And in addition... Um, the prosecution did offer Willingham a plea to two counts, I think of capital murder, but with a a sentence of life in prison. Mm -hmm. And um, Willingham turned it down. One of the things, and this is interesting, the uh, David Martin had consulted a, another fire expert who I believe was out of Dallas. And Corsicana is, I think, south of Dallas. And he looked at everything, and he told David Martin that he agreed with uh, Assistant Chief Fogg and Mr. Vasquez, that it was arson. Right. You need to... Okay. Take take that in your little mind, put that away, file it, because it'll come in later. Well, obviously he doesn't take the plea uh, offer. No, and and he also he took 
he took and the the uh, prosecution and the defense agreed to let him take a polygraph. Mm-hmm. And he failed. Now I I'm not uh, I don't recall what the circumstances were. Perhaps it was in um, in response to his claims that he was innocent. He also told investigators that uh, he thought maybe somebody else had come into the house and set the fire trying to kill him, but he would never identify anyone who would have a grudge against him who would do such a thing. And, and this is another interesting thing you need to fire, file away. If someone else had come into the house and set the fire, that's arson. Right. It's not an accident. No, not it's at not all. It's not electrical. It's not gas. It's arson. So file that little bit away. So the case okay. ended up, he didn't take the plea offer, and then he failed the polygraph. And I'm not sure whether... The polygraph and the plea offer were contiguous with one another, contingent on one another, or anything that like that, although I do know that Willingham actually declined to take the plea offer. And again, this is the antisocial borderline personality. He thought he could charm the jury. Mm-hmm. He thought he could get away, you know. And so he's not gonna he's not gonna plead guilty. Or maybe, you know, maybe he was waiting until they offered him manslaughter. Maybe he thought if he waited long enough, they would just keep knocking the charge down until he ended up not having to serve uh, much, if any, time. And so the case went to trial. I believe it was probably July, either late July or early August. I don't know exactly how long the trial was. He was convicted Mm -hmm. and sentenced in August. And the prosecution uh, in March of 92, the prosecution got sort of a gift. Right. A, an inmate at the Navarro County Jail contacted them and said, uh, Todd Willingham confessed. And so he was interviewed and he gave a statement to the prosecutors and his statement to prosecutors was consistent with what they had found in the arson investigation about an accelerant being poured on the floor of the baby's room, in the hallway, on the porch, and, you know, uh, being set on fire. Right. And Willingham said that he wanted to cover up child abuse, according to Johnny Webb. Right, And, exactly. you know, it's interesting because, remember, Amber was found face down in the bed under the covers in the master bedroom. Mm-hmm. Not in the girls' room where Willingham had told people she was. Um, so, uh, Johnny Webb had, he's a drug addict, he was he had a criminal record. He was not the most credible witness, but he did give them a statement that was consistent with the facts as they knew them, provided some information that uh, only Willingham would know mm-hmm. and was not released in the papers. 
And so they uh, told him very explicitly and clearly that they could not do anything. They couldn't offer him anything, that he was going to testify, and there was no offer of leniency on the criminal charges he was facing, jail time or anything. And he accepted that. He wanted to do the right thing. In March of 1992, he pled guilty to robbery with a 15-year sentence recommendation. He had been charged with aggravated robbery with a weapon. Mm -hmm. But um, robbery is a felony, and 15 years is not a slap on the wrist, especially not in TD, uh, Texas Department of Corrections or TDJ or whatever they call it. So, um, you know, and again, pleading guilty, he wasn't getting, you know, released and not having any consequences for the crime he had committed. Um, and so he was going to testify on behalf of the state, and he was the state's first witness. And he recounted the statements Willingham had made to him, and I don't know the full substance. I only know what was reported in the different opinions. But, uh, you know, again, it was information that was corroborated by the evidence, the physical evidence from the the fire scene. Mm -hmm. And then also they had Willingham's statements and his behavior. You know, people observing him crouched on the ground looking at the house. People observing him not doing anything or saying anything until he knew somebody was watching and then starting to scream about my babies and acting like he wants to go in the house. And a neighbor who said, where are the children? You know, go get them. And he he refused to go back in the house. So, um... And then they also had the investigators, the fire investigators' testimony. And while pieces have been taken out of context to criticize the investigators, uh, I believe that the full testimony would make it clear that they ruled out other causes. They ruled out an accidental fire. They, uh, they couldn't rule out the fire being started by one of the girls, but it was remote because they hadn't found any lighters or, or matches or anything. And with the poor patterns on the floor, especially the volume in the girls' room, it didn't seem uh, likely that one of the girls would have poured that much on the floor in the middle of the room and then accidentally set it on fire. Right. And certainly, you know, Carmen and Cameron and Amber were all supposed to be in the room behind the baby gate. So how would an accelerant get on the floor of the hallway leading out to the porch? So... Uh, and Amber was found in the master bedroom, but no lighter was found with her. And the fire started in the twins' room. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I think I think Mr. Vasquez made a mistake when he was talking. 
he believed that the fire started on the porch and went back. But I think what happened was Todd Willingham poured accelerant on the baby's room. He poured it out into the hallway and then up to the door. And then he basically threw a match or a lighter or something into the children's room, started the fire, and then he got out of the house, waited for a little bit of smoke to start, and then he got himself out of the house and took belongings outside and put them in his car, which he then moved after he broke the window and caused the fire to intensify. Right, right. And, uh, you know, the Johnny Webb was challenged. His credibility was challenged. Whether he had a deal was challenged. Uh, and the witnesses who testified about Willingham's statements. You know, David Martin, even though he believed and knew that Willingham was guilty, mm. primarily because his, you know, the arson investigator he consulted said, yeah, the state and the fire marshal or the, the, the fire chief and the fire marshal are right. It was arson. I agree with him. Um, he still defended Willingham mm-hmm. and uh, did put on his best defense. He challenged every single witness. He challenged the fire investigators. He challenged the witnesses offering, you know, well, it could have been an accident probably offering criticism of the ruling out, how they ruled out the electrical or the gas, you know, those type of things. And that was all before the jury. And the jury still found beyond a reasonable doubt that Todd Willingham was guilty of capital murder of his daughters. Mm-hmm. Because he set the fire that killed them. Right. Absolutely. So they move on to the punishment phase, and is this the first time that spousal abuse is addressed? Yes. Uh, again, you know, several people testified uh, seeking mercy for Todd, mm-hmm. and Stacy uh, Willingham was one of them. At that time, she still believed that he could not have done this, that he would not have done it, that they had the wrong person. And that, you know, that probably that the investigators didn't do a good enough job and were just trying to take the easy way out. And she testified and she denied any any spousal abuse. She said he'd never hit her. There had never been any abuse. And unfortunately, there were friends of hers whom she told about the abuse who had seen her uh, with bruises, black eyes, marks on her stomach, one of whom she had said that uh, Todd had kicked her while she was pregnant. I'm not sure whether while she was pregnant with Amber or with the twins, but that Stacy believed that he was kicking her in the stomach to make her have a miscarriage. Right. That was what Stacy believed his motive was in attacking her and kicking her in the stomach while she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so those witnesses were able to come in and rebut Stacy's testimony. The neighbors also reported uh, or testified regarding the abuse that they had witnessed themselves. And this wasn't, I've seen a lot of interviews and a lot of the documentaries, and they say, you know, the spousal, it was all hearsay. It wasn't all hearsay. A lot of these witnesses that came in to rebut Stacy were either testifying about what they had seen with their own eyes or they were testifying about statements Stacy had made directly to them that were inconsistent with her testimony. And right. that is allowed. That is, you know, when a witness testifies inconsistently with a prior statement, you can bring in that prior statement if they deny saying it. You know, they say, oh, no, I never said that. You can bring that statement in. And even if it was to a third party, it's not like a statement that you give uh, in an accident report or to an attorney. It's a statement that you you said to uh, say, you know, you get in a car accident and you say, yeah, it was my fault. I should have stopped at that stop sign. And then later you testify and say, oh, no, I never said that to Lisa O'Brien. Then Mm -hmm. if your attorneys know about me, they can bring me in and say, did he ever say he didn't stop at the stop sign? And I would have to say, yes, he did. Because you did. Um, That's hearsay, but it's a statement against interest, which is one of the exceptions. In criminal right. trials, is more you know more statement statement again to interest. Anything the defendant says, whether they testify or not, can be brought in. It's not hearsay; it's a statement against interest. But as far as abuse, it wasn't it wasn't established with strictly all hearsay evidence. It was established by witnesses who saw it, witnesses who heard it, witnesses who who intervened. Stop it. And right. so, uh, and then, you know, Willingham's prior criminal record was brought in. He had been involved in criminal activity as a juvenile, which they couldn't disclose. Um, but they said he had been involved in criminal activity since he was about 15 or 16. And right. again, his family in the Frontline documentary said he started using drugs at 11. Hmm. And and inhaling, inhalants, sniffing paint. Right. Right. That may that doesn't do your brain any favors. Yeah. And so uh, after all the testimony, and another factor, I don't know if we've ever talked about it before, but another factor in the punishment phase. Uh, or in their deliberations to determine whether to sentence someone to death or sentence them to life in prison. The facts of the offense are a part of that consideration. And so with Todd Willingham, you have, it was proven to the jurors beyond a reasonable doubt that he set a fire that killed a two-year-old girl and her one-year-old sisters. Mm-hmm. by a man who ran out of the house and left all three of his toddlers 
to die. Yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, he says he, he says he had Amber and she got away from him and he couldn't find her because of the smoke and the flame and the heat. But his condition after the fire did not corroborate that. He didn't have right. smoke inhalation. Right. He was taken to the hospital and kept overnight for observation, but he was at the house the next day going through the debris with Stacy, and apparently they were laughing. A couple nights later, he was at a bar that was, the owner of the bar was throwing a dart tournament to try to help raise money for the girls' funerals, and Willingham was talking to people about how the money was going to start rolling in now that his kids are dead. Right. And that he was going to buy this, and he was going to buy that, and he was going to buy the other thing. You know, he wanted to buy a pair of darts, very expensive darts, and the bar owner was like, I don't want you to give me back money I'm trying to raise for you. So she ended up giving him the darts. It's just not, you know, he was thinking about what he could get. I don't know whether that was involved in the punishment phase, but it just occurred to me, <laughs> and I wanted right. to get it out there. I mean, you know, like I said, it, it goes with the I, – I don't think that, that that all really came into trial, although probably, possibly, uh, some of the witnesses that testified at trial, you know, testified about the inconsistent statements and the odd behavior and statements at the funerals and things like that. And all that goes in, and the jurors decide whether the person is deserving of uh, life. And in, in Texas, life in prison doesn't mean life. It means you have to serve a minimum of 35 years, and then you can get out. And it's it's so ironic that in a state where... You know, the death penalty is almost sacrosanct that they're, you know, they, they've, I don't think they've ever had life without parole, and they still don't have life without parole. Right. They, I mean, and, you know, everybody wants to knock the Texas, uh, the Texas criminal system. Yeah. So, but, uh, and the jury, you know, they evaluated everything, the victims, the, uh, their ages, the facts of the crime, what had been proven to them, and the um, testimony, you know, from the witnesses on behalf of Wilhelm and on behalf of the state, and they, they found that he deserved a death. Right. So they sentenced him to death. And that automatically we go now to the uh, direct appeal right afterwards, correct? That's the one Mm -hmm. that's automatically triggered, if I'm remembering correctly, from my year almost experience on this show. (laughs) That is correct. It is triggered. I'm hoping I'm right. And... As I recall, I haven't researched in a while, 
it's automatic and it goes to the highest court in the state. Okay. So in Louisiana, it would be the Louisiana Supreme Court. In Texas, in Arkansas, it's the Arkansas Supreme Court. And in Texas, it is the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals because they have their own criminal appeal court. And that is the highest court as far as criminal charges. They do have a Supreme Court, but I believe, and I haven't researched that either, um, I believe the jurisdiction for criminal cases is highest court is solely the Court of Criminal Appeals. Okay. Now, one of the interesting things, the direct appeal was filed uh, immediately in 1992, David Martin, who represented Willingham at trial, and an attorney by the, Greg, by the name of Greg White, who I don't believe was uh, the second chair attorney for Willingham at trial, mm-hmm. but I could be mistaken. Uh, they filed the appeal. An uh, interesting thing, in 1992, probably shortly before Willingham's trial, uh, an association called NFPA, I don't know what that stands for, but they're like the um, the Professional Association of Fire Investigation. They're like the right. ABA, the American Bar Association, or the AMA, the American Medical Association. Um, and I think it's National Fire Protection Association, perhaps, if I'm remembering correctly. They had issued standards for fire investigation. And they, they issued different standards for fire investigator fire investigators for um, municipalities uh, protecting health, life and safety codes and things like that. Right. They had issued standards for fire investigators in 1992. Mm-hmm. Those standards probably began being circulated and promulgated and uh, uh, publicized between 1992 and, say, 1993-1994. This was during a time that the direct appeal was uh, pending, and at no time did Willingham's attorneys raise any issues regarding the sufficiency of the evidence of arson supporting the capital murder conviction, mm-hmm. nor did they seek to have an expert review the reports or testimony of the arson investigators or the fire investigators to determine whether or not their findings were accurate, consistent, and uh, following the you know proper protocols of 1991, or in line with the new standards that had been set forth in 1992, or you know right. promulgated in 1992. And um, that is actually, I mean, it's really interesting. This is three years after his conviction when his uh, direct appeal was. Uh, was decided and the conviction and sentence were affirmed 
uh, all of his issues were found to be without merit, which were, um, like I said, none of them were related to the arson, the arson evidence, the arson testimony, or the arson investigation in, its, in and of itself. Um, it was uh, mostly dealing with the sufficiency of the evidence for death penalty. Uh, one challenge was to the denial of a motion for change of venue. And then um, the uh, denial of a attempt to impeach Johnny Webb. The uh, failure of the trial court to give an instruction to the jury on the effect of parole as a mitigating circumstance. And that um, the evidence as a whole on the punishment phase was insufficient to support uh, the death penalty. Those were the those were what he appealed, and none of those issues involved the arson testimony. And I hope right. you remember what I told you to remember because I don't remember it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Ah, we'll muddle through. All right. On uh, in nineteen, his his uh, like I said, conviction and sentence were both affirmed in nineteen ninety five in March, and in nineteen ninety seven, he filed a state post conviction writ, which was denied by the trial court. And the denial was affirmed by the Court of Criminal Appeals. I don't know what issues he uh, raised in that because the records are not electronically available. And the opinion of the Court of Criminal Appeals is merely saying, we've reviewed everything and we've reviewed the findings of fact and conclusions of law. We don't disagree with it, so affirmed. Right. No written opinion as to why they're affirming. Um, so I don't know, okay. but I, I do know from what I can infer from the various articles that I've read um, that he did not challenge the arson evidence, the testimony of the arson investigators, or the, excuse me, the um, evidence used to support the investigator's finding of arson. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I think probably he probably raised the same issues he'd raised at, as, at appeal as far as um, the change of venue and uh, failing to allow certain evidence to impeach Webb and then failing to give the punishment instruction about parole, uh, which actually, when you think about it, having the judge tell a capital murder jury, if you sentence him to life in prison, he can get out in 35 years, is really not a good idea. Because more likely than not, they will sentence him to death. Right. 
Now, other states where there is life without parole, you do have to tell the jury, if you sentence them to life, you can sentence them to life without parole. They won't get out. But that is because you want the jurors to know if you sentence them to life, he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. But you can't tell the jurors, if you sentence him to life, he has to serve 35 years and then he can, he, we can get out. Potentially. Um, that's not a good idea. It's counterintuitive. But I think he was trying to argue, but if I get out at 35, you know, 35 years, I'm 25 when I go in there, I'm going to be 60. If my math mm-hmm. is right. And then right. I won't be a danger to anybody. Well, you know, that's not that's not a sure thing, Todd. Because I've seen some people who are danger 60, 65, 70, 75. You're, you can be a danger until you're in the grave. Yeah, uh, danger if does not. If you put not, your mind to it. Yeah, danger does not expire with age. Yeah. So... Um, so he was unsuccessful at state post-conviction, but again, he never challenged arson findings. He never challenged arson testimony, except in one small part in the federal habeas, um, and he never challenged the uh, investigator, the evidence supporting the investigators. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in federal habeas corpus... He did challenge one small part of Manuel Vasquez's uh, testimony, but that was only apparently during a um, an exchange with David Martin or co-counsel on cross-examination. Uh, Mr. Vasquez did say that he knew that... Uh, Willingham set the fire for the purpose of killing his children. And that was outside the bounds of fire science and and Mr. Vasquez's expertise. However, it was also something that can be inferred from other evidence of which Mr. Vasquez would likely have been aware, such Mm -hmm. as lack of remorse. Right. And crying over the dartboard, but not over his dead children. Um, you know, feigned distress when he realized he was being observed by neighbors. Um, in fact, the only time he really had to be restrained when they brought Amber out of the house, that's when he tried to get to her and had to be restrained. He didn't have to be restrained going into the house while it was still on fire just once Amber had been brought out of the house that the firefighters were, you know, getting the fire back down. Yeah, of course. So, um, but, uh, again, he didn't, he didn't seriously challenge. And, you know, something that's interesting, the federal habeas was uh, decided in 2001 was likely filed in the late 19, 
Oh, no, it was decided by the district court. It was decided by the magistrate in 2000. It's probably filed in the federal district court in the late 90s, 98, 99, or 1997, you know, somewhere around there. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I didn't find a date of when it was specifically filed in federal court. But you have a year once your conviction becomes final. Um, he did, uh, after his direct appeal, he did seek a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court. So his time to file the federal, the state habeas began to run after he was denied a writ on the direct appeal. I think he filed a second writ to uh, the Supreme Court after the state post-conviction. But I'm not right. sure about that. But anyway, okay. so it was probably filed in 98. The state post-conviction and the, the, uh, was decided in 1997. So he had to file by 1998. Mm-hmm. And it was decided by the magistrate in July of 2000. Willingham filed objections in August of 2000. And the uh, district court ruled on the objections and adopted and denied relief in 2001. Gerald Hurst, who examined the case in 2004, Craig Byler who examined the case in connection with the Texas Forensic Science Commission, and John Lentini, who became involved either through the Forensic Science Commission or at the request of the Innocence Project or at some unknown time after Willingham was executed, all three of them were working in the field, doing cause and and, uh, origin analysis, examining evidence, testing evidence, performing testing to document, observe and document how fire behaved, how it, you know, how it, how different materials, uh, how fast they ignited, whether they ignited at all, how fast they burned, um, you know, what, how, how badly they were, how bad they looked when they were burned, you know, all different experiments and things like that. A lot of fire departments do that as well now. And a lot of fire investigation, uh, fire department, fire investigators have, you know, they have places that they go and they set them on fire and firefighters learn how to put them out and, investigators learn how to interpret. So they know we poured gasoline here and lit it on fire. And we they know how much they poured and they can test it and see what's left, if anything. So those kind of, you know, studies. None of them right. were consulted. And, and and during the, you know, during 1997 they were available. Or 1996 1995, they were available, they were out there, they were doing this 
Willingham's attorneys could have engaged them at that time and didn't. And so I I have a I have a problem with that because if there's a problem with the with the testimony and the evidence, why was nobody looking at it until two thousand four? I mean, Willingham's post-conviction attorney, Walter Reeves, who handled the federal habeas, he went to prison and he interviewed Johnny Webb, trying to get Johnny Webb to recant his testimony. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't he contact Gerald Hurst, John Lentini, or Craig Byler then? Especially Hurst and Lentini. Like I said, I've spoken to Lentini several times because he was either our expert in a case or he was an expert for a a co-defendant or I was contacting him because he represented the plaintiff or he was the expert for a plaintiff and I had been instructed to contact him directly because he handled his own schedule. And the plaintiff's attorney wanted me to do the footwork to get the deposition scheduled. Right. Um, And, of course, when I talked to him, I didn't talk about our client's case. I didn't talk about his client's case. I merely said, hello, Mr. Lantini, my name is. And then what we'd, we'd like to take your deposition you know, the attorney, the plaintiff's attorney said, I should contact you directly and speak to you to get dates that you're available. And that would be all I would have said. Right. But um, I talked to him. I mean, he's a very nice man, very knowledgeable. Like I said, he was at LSU, I believe, for many years. I believe he was also at uh, in Jefferson Parish for many years. But he was doing this in the 90s. Right. And so I, I, I don't see any reason why Willingham's attorneys who are willing to go to the prison to talk to Johnny Webb were not willing to put together the reports and the trial transcripts and contact Gerald Hurst or John Martini and say, hey, I've, I'm representing this guy on death row in Texas. He was convicted of arson, but he wasn't. He was convicted of capital murder. Um, you know, accused of burning up his three daughters. Would you take a look at this? Right. And you know, even if they even if they wanted money, I'm sure they would be reasonable, and you could petition the court for. And, you know, I'm sure they would have been reasonable and said, okay, yeah, uh, my retainer is $1,500. Because I know when we hired them as defense experts, when we hired Mr. Lentini as defense expert, take that back, um, he was not, you know, he wanted a retainer. I can't remember what the exact amount was, but he wanted a retainer. It wasn't as much as $5,000, I know. And then he billed against that retainer. You know, we've had we had another fire expert 
in a case that we have who's local in, in Louisiana and his his retainer was I think twenty five hundred dollars. And he's built against that since we retained him. So I I mean it would not have been impossible for uh Wellingham's post conviction attorney, a gentleman by the name of Reeves, to seek an expert to review this this evidence. Right, and it would only make sense for him to. And then, then again, that I mean, could have been, you know, that could have been, in, that could have been included in his state post conviction. It most certainly could have been included, uh, or it it would have been probably, if it wasn't in his first state post conviction, he would have had to file a subsequent or supplement a subsequent motion with the court of criminal appeals to present it to the state court. But again, if you've had a fire expert examine it and they render a report that rules out accidental, uh, that rules out arson, finds an accidental cause or finds Wouldn't an you electrical be running problem with that? or finds a gas problem, then the court would have, you know, the court of criminal appeals would have remanded to the trial court to, to take testimony and to determine whether or not he should get a new trial. And that's what they were doing when they were trying to get, that's what they were doing when they were trying to get Webb to recant. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have been running with that information. I'd have been like, hey, I've got this information that's going to save my client's life. Here you go. I wouldn't have waited. Exactly. And... Interestingly enough, David Grant, who wrote, an, who I believe wrote the New Yorker article, um, he said that he talked to the expert consulted by Martin uh, prior to the trial, and he apparently told him all this quote new evidence from Hearst and Byler and uh, Lentini and DeHaan and all the big names in, in fire investigation. And that guy said he's sorry he made a mistake. Well, that's David. That's what David Grant says. But I don't believe he named the person. <laughs> he said they were from around Dallas. And then, you know, he says the person, uh, uh, you know, says they're sorry, but they haven't submitted any affidavits from that person. So um, I'll believe it. And that's one of the problems. I think we talked about this with Mr. Kratz. One of the problems with documentaries like Making a Murderer, uh, Paradise Lost, and even the Frontline documentary is these are out-of-court statements made, not under oath, and not... um, subject to cross-examination or even challenge. And they're the classic definition of hearsay in that they're offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. They're offered to prove Willingham was innocent. Right. They're out-of-court statements. 
you could you could not take a documentary like Making a Murder. You can't take those twenty hours or twenty plus hours and go to court in Wisconsin and sit the judge down in front of the TV for twenty hours and then say, "See, grant my motion." That's not how it works. Absolutely not. And that's part of the problem with this especially with this because they're making these allegations and claims in the media but they have not brought them properly before court. And I mean we'll move on on the on the on the federal habeas, you know, his federal habeas uh was denied by the magistrate Relief was denied by the judge, and then the Fifth Circuit mm-hmm. affirmed. Right. Um, he never raised anything except for one statement made by Vasquez, or two statements made by Vasquez. And the court found that, yeah, he should have made those, but that was harmless error because there was other evidence sufficient to prove arson and sufficient to prove that Mr. Willingham set that fire and killed, killed those children. Right. So um, then the U.S. Supreme Court denied his writ, and Texas set his execution date for uh, February 17, 2004. This mm-hmm. would have been probably sometime toward the fall of uh, 2003. And between the time the execution date was set and around January 26th, as I understand the rough chronology, nobody consulted any fire experts. Mm-hmm. Nobody sent anything to Gerald Hurst or asked Gerald Hurst to do Bagu. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks before the execution date, Gerald Hurst was provided with trial transcripts or transcripts of the fire investigator's testimony and the reports and photographs and video. And in two weeks, Mr. Hurst generates a report that unequivocally rules out arson. No doubt about it. However, some of the statements Mr. Hurst, Dr. Hurst made in that report would lead some to interpret a level of bias. As I understood it, Mr. Hurst is a brilliant man. He had a, a like a doctorate in chemistry from Cambridge University. And I think to mean the one over in England. Because I don't think we have a Cambridge here. Mm-hmm. Harvard is in Cambridge, but Cambridge is in England. And he's a brilliant man. Um, but he made some statements that were just, he was like almost like personal attacks on the fire investigators because of snippets that he had pulled out and taken out of context from their testimony at trial. Mm. And, um, so, you know, it was, it was, again, it could be interpreted as bias. To someone who is advocating for Mr. Willingham, I'm sure they, they thought, yay, Ms. Dr. Hurst, 
good job, Dr. Hurst. But, you know, somebody else looking at it might think, mm, this is not objective because these criticisms of the investigators have no place in an objective analysis of the evidence and the facts and the findings to determine whether or not this was arson or not. Another right. thing is Dr. Hurst could not identify an accidental cause. Mm-hmm. Advocates for Willingham say, well, of course he couldn't just, you know, he couldn't identify an accidental cause because, you know, it was years later and everything was gone. However, he had a video and he had photos. Hmm. And any any fire investigator looking at it after the fact who cannot be there, that is what they're going to have. And they can find, you know, you can look at photographs, and if, if you look at a photograph and you see evidence of charring or burning or stripping of wires... In a photograph, you can say, see, 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 look, it could have been electrical. There were pictures of the fuse box. You know, there's pictures of the wiring in the girl's room. Um, You know, you could have, you could have, he could have made that determination, but he didn't. So he could, he said it was an arson, but he couldn't determine how it started. Hmm. Um, that report was received by the defense, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, around February 13th. It was submitted to the Board of Pardons and Paroles, and they denied clemency. It was submitted to the Texas Court of Court Appeals, and they did not stay the execution. Okay. The request for clemency, or no, rather, excuse me, a request for a reprieve, which was a 30-day delay, was sent to Governor Rick Perry. He received that 88 minutes before the execution. Yeah, a little bit late. And I... Am of the opinion, and it's my opinion. Everybody, you know, it's like, you know what? Everybody has one. Right. I don't think there was time for him to really consider. And again, just saying, Hearst's report strikes you as an advocate's opinion rather than an objective examination of the case. Right. Had Dr. Hurst written his report a little bit more objectively, it might have made a a better impression on Governor Perry, who then might have thought, hmm, there are some questions. Let's give them 30 days. That's not what happened. And I also think that, again, as I said, a few minutes ago, Mr. Reeves should have consulted a fire expert long before 
January 26, 2004. Yeah. He should have consulted one during the first state post-conviction. He should have consulted one during the federal habeas. He probably would have had to go back to state court with that, but he would have had at least three or four years prior to the execution date having even been set in order to do so. He wouldn't have needed to ask for more time. He would have had the time to do to do it. Um, you know, had he even asked for it after the federal habeas was denied, while he was applying for a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court, they might not have even set an execution date after the denial of the writ because they would have had a pending supplemental claim in state court. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I criticize Bryce Benjet with the Rodney Reed case a lot, but that's what he's doing. Every time he loses a claim, he immediately files a new claim somewhere with some court, sometimes raising the same issues. Hmm. But at least he's getting those filings in, and so we're not looking at uh, you know, an execution date and trying to get a reprieve or a stay. A stay means it is going to happen. A reprieve means we'll give you 30 days and we'll reset it for, you know, day 31. Um, although in Texas, even if you get a reprieve, you may still have to go through the 90-day process before you get a new date. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but again, they should have consulted Dr. Hurst, Mr. Lentini, Mr. Byler, Dr. DeHaan, all these guys have been around. They were around in the 1990s. They were around in the early 2000s. Right. And even at that time, because these guys go back to the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, getting started as investigators and getting started earning their degrees and setting up their laboratories and doing their studies. John Lentini did do like a seminal study in about 1993 to exonerate a man who was facing arson charges in Florida, if I recall correctly. It was called the Lime Street Fire. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, and 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 that got a lot of press and a lot of media attention at the time. Hmm. So, you know, why this wasn't done by Mr. Reeves? It it, it it's beyond me to figure out why he would not, because he he eventually did in 2004 when his client was less than 30 days from execution. That's more than a little And so Judge uh, Governor Perry, of course, did not grant relief. uh, And Cameron Willingham's, uh, his execution went forward as planned on February 17th, 2004. Mm -hmm. He had had a visit with his ex-wife, Stacy, because she divorced him after he was convicted and sentenced to prison. 
uh, sent to death row. And they had a meeting at the prison. He told her he didn't want her to attend his execution. And if I recall correctly, he also requested that he be buried with Amber, Carmen, and Cameron. Um, As I understand all the different sources that I've read, Stacy was having doubts, I believe, about his innocence. And so when he requested that she allow him to be buried with his with their daughters, she declined. And either impulsively to hurt her, he then told her, I killed him. I did it. I set the house on fire. I burned him up. Hmm. Um, I, I see that as a confession. Some might see that as the words of a man who was just angry and saying anything to hurt somebody. But after all those years of claiming he was innocent, to anybody who would listen, why in the world would he tell Stacy that he did it? Right. Short, shortly after this visit, Stacy uh, apparently had told her brother. Her brother gave a, a declaration or affidavit repeating it. That would have been hearsay because he wasn't there to witness it. But um, uh, around the time of the execution, uh, I believe Stacy did confirm it, and she did attend the execution even against his wishes. Mm-hmm. And um, his last words initially were professing his innocence. He quoted, I believe it was Metallica. And then, wow. um, and then he looked at Stacy, and he had a profanity-laced tirade directed at her, likely because she wouldn't allow him to be buried with their kids and um he uh it it was very ugly uh rot in hell bitch was just a part of it wow and looking right at her okay here i found it here um he uh Addressed Stacy, who was watching about eight feet away through a window, and said several times, I hope you rot in hell, bitch. He then attempted to maneuver his hands, dropped to the wrist into an obscene gesture. His former wife showed hmm. no reaction to the outburst. Found another version that um, he dropped a couple F bombs in addition to, hope you rot in hell, bitch. But, you know, that's. Um, yeah, from God's dust I came, and the dust I will return, so the earth shall become my com- throne. The earth becoming the throne is from a Metallica song. <laughs> and the wow. dust, and du- dust to dust thing is kind of, he, he's paraphrasing Metallica. I wonder if he paid James Hetfield and, and Lars Ulrich for that. Knowing them, they'd probably be happy to have a convicted murderer 
uh, quoting them. But, uh, yeah, not really, you know, you could say you're innocent, and this is one of the, I think one of the things people don't get about me. Mm-hmm. You probably don't get it sometimes. What a person convicted of murder, whether they're sentenced to death or life in prison, what they say does not hold a lot of credibility for me. If you're convicted of a murder by a jury, you're going to have to corroborate what you're saying. If you say the sky is green, I'm going to look look out the window and check you on that. And if I see that right. blue, I'm not going to be, believe a word you say. I don't believe people. Guilty people can claim to be innocent. You know, it's 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 sad when someone is truly innocent and nobody believes them. But you have to prove that you're innocent. Once the jury says guilty, the burden shifts to you. And you have to present the evidence that, your trial was not fair, that something was wrong with your trial, that the prosecutor did something wrong or the police did something wrong or the, you know, court did something wrong. It can't just be your word that I'm innocent, give me a new trial. And what so many people don't understand or don't see or don't know is that they think that the presumption of innocence applies It doesn't matter how many juries say you're guilty. You're entitled to the presumption of innocence because they have questions about evidence or they have questions about arguments in your case. And because they personally have questions, that equals reasonable doubt, and therefore you're not guilty. You shouldn't be in prison. That's not how it works. Just because you'd have doubts doesn't mean the jurors should have. So it should. (laughs) <laughs> and so often, though, and this is where we get the, the post-execution efforts. <clears throat> Excuse me. After Willingham was executed, um, there were journalists who wrote articles saying he was innocent. They were hearsay um, because they're out-of-court statements not subject to oath or cross-examination that are offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted that Willingham is innocent. And so the Innocence Project, seeing a great propaganda opportunity, decided to come in and get involved. And to me, that is just about the cruelest Thing that anybody could have done to members of Todd Willingham's family because these Innocence Project attorneys come in and convince Todd's stepmother and sister to file mm-hmm. claims, uh, first of all, to try and get a judicial exoneration. They filed when the Texas uh, Forensic Science Commission was created around 2010, they filed a request that the Forensic Science Commission review the case. And they got all these great experts together. They're all world-renowned. 
they're they're all at the top of their fields. They all have the most impressive credentials from universities and uh, agencies and companies and professional associations. And they are, you know, just they're they're infallible according to the uh, Innocent Project. Although I would be willing to bet that I could go through FastCase and search their names and any cases in which they testified for the prosecution in a criminal case, I could find people who thought that they were wrong all the time. Right. I've said that about Michael Biden. (laughs) I know there are people doing time in DOC in New York who think Biden doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground because he was the medical examiner on their case, and they're in prison. But um, they filed that. The Texas Forensic Science Commission agreed to, to review the cases. There was a, a second case. They, The Forensic Science Commission is the one who hired Craig Byler. And Byler, like Dr. Hurst, uh, rendered a report that was kind of misrepresented some of the evidence and testimony and statements and um, again relied on small pieces of testimony from the trial that were taken out of context Mm -hmm. and represented as being the sum of the evidence against Cameron Todd Willingham. Of course, I'm sure you recall there was a shakeup Governor Perry, um, I, I think he he thought that the Forensic Science Commission was on a was not interested in objectively examining these things, but to find fault. And you know, I would I would agree, and I don't think anybody if if you don't understand why, then you really are um, I don't know kind of. Uh, special, I guess. Of course, the state of Texas does not want the Forensic Science Commission saying that Cameron Todd Willingham was innocent. Right. Especially not on the basis of an expert who is not objective, who is advocating for Willingham, and who is basically applying current standards to an investigation conducted in 1991 and a trial conducted in 1992 before those standards even came into being. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like judging history by the morals of today. You know, you can't go back and that's the, that's one of the problems I have with removing the Confederate reminders of the Confederate, uh, Confederates and the the removing tombs and removing statues and removing things, Um, you know, to me, let's understand, yes, slavery was wrong. I won't argue with anybody about that. No doubt about it. But the Civil War was not about slavery. That was a small issue. It was about states' rights to govern themselves, just like the American Revolution 
was about the colonies, the colonists' right to govern themselves rather than be governed by King George III in Parliament in London. Hmm. They they really were not that different, right? For whatever reason, and it, it was probably you know propaganda and um, fear. They believed that when Abraham Lincoln was elected, that he would, from you know Washington D.C., decree that they couldn't have slaves anymore, and at that time, their economy depended upon agrarian sources. Rice, cotton, wheat, corn. Uh, you know, the South was the farmland for the most part, and the manufacturer. You know, the the pro, you know, provider of materials for manufacture, like cotton and things like that, timber. And they they could not afford to pay people to do those jobs. You know, they would they would lose their entire lives if they did not have people to, you know, do the job. And it's wrong. I, I don't I don't disagree. It's wrong. But in those days it wasn't. And slavery right. actually goes back into biblical times. And something right, interesting right. In, in Africa I believe that slavery is still practiced. If one tribe takes over, then anybody who lives in the place that they take over is less than they are, and they can become slaves. Hmm. That's uh, and different. In reality, a lot of times, slaves who were brought over to the United States had been captured by rival tribes, and then sold to slavers. You know, I mean, some slavers were going over and, you know, chasing people down and capturing them, but a lot of times they were going over and having all, they already captured people, you know, sold to them. So... Hmm. You know, I mean, it was bad, it was wrong, but I don't think we should erase, because if you if you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it. So right. instead of taking down a monument, and a lot of the, a lot of the people like Robert E. Lee, I don't think it's fair, because he was pardoned for his role. He went on to serve publicly for many years until his death. He was a brilliant uh, tactical general. And the only reason he fought for the South is because he could not fight against it because he was a Virginian. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, I mean, he he bore no ill will, but he just he could not fight against his his family in Virginia. 
I, I believe that he was related to Mar- Martha Washington through her family. I don't hmm. know if you knew that. No, I didn't. And Arlington, and and you know the other the other. Uh, before I die, before I go back after this digression, um, Arlington National Cemetery was General Lee's family property that was taken over and turned into a cemetery. Well, damn, I didn't know that. As, I think, a punishment after the Civil War. No, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, he paid for his mistake. But, like I said, they, they these people thought they were doing the right thing at that time. The morals of the day were different. You know, that's just, that's how it was. You can't judge the past by the morals of the day. Yeah, let's learn and change, but don't you know? Don't look at the past and condemn somebody that you don't you don't understand why they felt the way they did. But anyway, right. so <clears throat> uh, again, as we were saying, there was a shakeup. Uh, Governor Perry ended up. Um, taking some of the commissioners off the Texas Forensic Science Commission and appointing uh, people who he felt were better suited. And the Forensic Science Commission did examine the two convictions, but ultimately they, they found that while the methods and some of the evidence or findings were not up to today's standards, they did not find any negligence or intentional act by Mr. Vasquez or Assistant Chief Fogg. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they really ended up finding that uh, uh, Willingham was wrongfully convicted or that it was an arson. Um, it's represented as being that, but, uh, you know, they, they kind of said there are other reasons, other things that can cause the different indicators. But, um, again, they didn't find any negligence or any any malfeasance on the part of Mr. Fogg or Assistant Chief Fogg or Mr. Vasquez. And in the end, it's really not properly... Uh, the issue of guilt or innocence, and this was Governor Perry's objection to the way things were going with the Forensic Science Commission, that is not the place to determine whether he was innocent or guilty to challenge his conviction. The proper place for a challenge to his conviction was in court. Right. So what did what did the Innocence Project do? They once again got Miss uh, Willingham and Miss Cox, who is Willingham's sister, to file a request for a court of inquiry in Travis County. Mm-hmm. And one of the judges who had affirmed Willingham's direct appeal, a gentleman by the name of Baird, he agreed and he started setting up hearings and subpoenaing witnesses and calling 
for hearings to determine whether a court of inquiry should be convened. Unfortunately, he only wanted to hear from people who were uh, aligned with Willingham. He did not want to hear from the fire investigators. He did not want to hear from uh, experts for the state who disagreed with the various fire experts. Um, he, right. I think, didn't even want to hear from the district attorney in Navarro County. Are you still there? Did we cut off, Michael? I'm going to be upset if we cut off. You still there, Michael? Well, anyway, so uh, the district attorney of Navarro County uh, decided to request that Judge Baird recuse himself because he had affirmed Willingham's original conviction. And um, Judge Baird did not... uh, he didn't deny the motion to recuse, but he didn't either grant it by recusing himself or refer it to a, um, uh, a the chief judge to determine whether he should recuse or not. Well, the uh, district attorney in Navarro County went to the appellate court, and the appellate court found that Judge Baird should have either recused himself or should have referred it to the uh, chief judge to determine whether he should recuse. And they ceased or halted any preference. 